So all of those were hymns written by Charles Wesley out of his close to 10,000 that he wrote in his lifetime, and those are some of the, the best ones. And again, it shows his skill and, and gift as a poet, but also his understanding of God's Word. Um, every hymn that we've looked at from his, just like Newton's, is just filled with Scripture. And, I mean, if we just went with every allusion to Scripture, um, it would be a, a full service. Uh, we can't do that with every line. We can't do that even with every word. But what a tremendous example to be saturated with the Word of God. But tonight we're going to look at another one of his greatest hymns. And this is perhaps one of my favorites as well. And I think I say that about a lot of them, but I guess I have a lot of favorites. Uh, of course, we already learned that Charles Wesley was the brother of John Wesley. And John Wesley was credited as the main founder and organizer of the Methodist movement. And something that we often forget is that the Methodist movement was just a movement when it started in the Church of England. So they're actually an offshoot of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, back in the 1700s. And then when the separation came uh, in the late 1700s between England and, and the Americas, uh, then they started forming alternate congregations and chapels and became an established church as well. But before we look at this new hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, which we will sing later as we've done in the past, I want to spend some time learning about someone else who I think would have played a significant part in his life and ministry. I mentioned this even last week because that is his wife. We've all probably heard the adage that behind every great man is a greater woman. And I, I'm sure that was the case for the two hymn writers that we've looked at so far in our series on Amazing Grace. Even though we don't know hardly anything about John Newton's wife except her name, which was Mary, we do know something about Charles Wesley's wife. Her name, her given name, was Sarah Gwynn, but for some reason went by Sally instead. So, again, I'm not sure how you get Jackie out of John, and I definitely don't see how you get Sally out of Sarah, but that's what she was known by. Sally was about 20 years younger than Charles and was first introduced to him when he was already well known for his preaching and hymn writing all throughout England. Charlie and Sally met when she was in her early 20s, when Charles actually stayed at her parents' home on one of his evangelistic trips in 1747. So this would have been close to a decade after his conversion experience where he came to know Christ personally. Sally's father was actually a well-to-do magistrate in the area, and I think she was born in Wales, and I think a lot of this even took place near Wales, if not in Wales. He was committed to the Church of England, and as a magistrate, he had the responsibility of making sure that the laws of the state, which also were the laws of the church, were in order. And so when an, an, an unlicensed Methodist preacher, not Wesley, but another unlicensed Methodist preacher came around. His name was Howell Harris. Actually, her father was going to arrest him as he was preaching. But instead, he arrived, and God had other plans. Instead of arresting the preacher, he listened and was saved through the gospel that that man preached. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And from then on, her own father, Marmaduke Gwynne, was a powerful force for the Methodists, and he even preached himself sometimes. 
So when Charles Wesley came to the Gwyn home, he was with friends. He was with friends. And even though there was such an age difference between them, both he and Sally were attracted to each other with Christian love. In 1749, just two years after they met, they were married. And of course, Brother John officiated that wedding. Uh, one of the concerns of Sally's mother was how Charles would be able to support her daughter as an itinerant preacher and just a poet. Uh, there's not a whole lot of poets that make enough to make a living for them and for their families. You know, it's kind of one of those starving artist situations. Well, to help get mom on his brother's side, John Wesley actually pledged to give Charles 100 pounds a year from the sales of his books and articles, which was actually hardly anything compared to what Sally would have been used to, being the daughter of a magistrate. But it was enough to get mom on the side, and, and they were married. Charles and Sally truly loved each other, and they truly loved serving together at home and in ministry. Sally herself was an accomplished singer and even had the opportunity when she was younger to sing before the King of England. Imagine that. She was able to travel with Charles in the early years of their marriage, but soon remained at home to care for her children and eventually to care for herself and her needs. In 1749, they moved to Bristol, England, and you can actually go and see the house that was where they lived in that area. But sadly, in Bristol, as much joy as they had as a family, there was a lot of sadness as well. Five of their infant children died there in Bristol. But three other of their children lived to adulthood, including Charles Jr., Samuel, and Sarah. And then in 1753, she suffered a terrible bout of smallpox, which left her disfigured to the point where some even said that you couldn't even recognize her the way she once was. But she was recognized for her love for the Lord, her love for Charles, her love for her children, and for her continued musical ability. She was so musical that both of their sons, Charles Jr. and Samuel, went on to have careers in music. In fact, I think in our hymn books, we actually have some tunes that were written by Samuel Wesley, which would have been Charles and and Sally's son. Charles and Sally were married for almost 40 years, and Sally outlived Charles for close to another 35 years. She died in 1822. Now, we can't know for sure, but it would seem like her music would have had some influence on Charles and her children. Imagine what it must have been like for Charles to, to write a new hymn, and then take it to Sally to get her ideas, maybe even to hear her sing it for the very first time. And then, of course, they'd gather in the children, and they'd teach it to their children as a family choir. What a pleasing sound that must have been to the Lord as they would sing these hymns of praise to the Lord. One of those hymns might have been the one that we will look at tonight, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Now, even though this was written before they were married, I'm sure that they sung it together at some point in their marriage and their family life. But this is not the actual title that Charles applied to his poem. Instead, it was published in 1742 in a collection titled Hymns and Sacred Poems. So there's a whole bunch of hymns and sacred poems, and this was one of them. And the words he placed just above the text of this hymn, some think it was a title, others think it was not a title, 
but just an introduction to the hymns after this title. The text was, Behold the Man. And of course, that echoes the words of Pontius Pilate when Jesus stood before him in Jerusalem. Behold the man. And just below is, Arise, my soul, arise. Here, he would apply the words that Pilate said to get us, Christians, to behold the man, to behold the glorious picture of Christ that he actually paints for us in this picture. Remember I said earlier uh, that when Wesley was saved, all of the church calendar was transformed for him. And so all of the holidays and special celebrations just took on new meaning to them. And, and so Christmas came around. He would write hymns about that. When, when Easter would come around, he'd write hymns about that. And I'm, I'm sure that Arise, My Soul, Arise was something that he would have written when he was thinking about the death of Christ, even concerning that Good Friday. And so much of this particular hymn gets us to look at the picture that he's trying to paint of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a glorious picture because Wesley knew that only Christ could help our soul's ability to arise when they are cast down. Why don't we open our Bibles to Psalm 42 if you're not there already? Because in Psalm 42, a familiar psalm for us, we find that this was the need of the psalmist who wrote this psalm. He needed help because his soul was cast down. In fact, several times in this psalm, he asks that haunting question, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And maybe that's a question you've had of your own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? But of course, we find the answer to this as well. And I think we also find the answer to this in Wesley's hymn. I'd like us to read this entire psalm together before we get in, into the hymn. Psalm 42, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with a multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Here's the answer. Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and from the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be within me. And my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me. While they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him, who is the health 
of my countenance and my God. Now, even though we don't know all of the details surrounding Wesley's writing of this hymn, unlike some of the others that we've looked at, he does seem to echo the answer that we also find in this psalm, which is found there in verse 5 and 11, which is simply, Hope thou in God. Hope thou in God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. And in this hymn, Wesley describes how Jesus, the Son of God, is our hope. And He's our hope because He is the one who can bring us to God the Father, and He is the one that will cause our souls to arise, even when we're cast down. Let's look at the words of this hymn more closely. In the first two lines of the first stanza, he kind of introduces this idea, this theme. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. And with these initial words, Wesley describes what all too often keeps the souls of Christians cast down, right? Guilty fears. Not so much guilt, though sometimes that casts us down. But yet, we really know that we're guilty of a lot. There are all those sins that so easily beset us. Even as Christians, we are still full of guilt. But it's not the guilt itself that he is crying out for. It's the guilty fears. Sometimes our biggest struggle is with the fears that flow from our guilt. That is, the fears of God's judgment and God's justice, even in light of the cross. We start to doubt. That's what a guilty fear is. It's a doubt that what God has said to us, what Jesus has done for us, what the Lord has promised to us, is really not for us. That's a guilty fear. Sometimes we live in the doubt of the power of Christ as our sacrifice, the power of Christ as our substitute, the power of Christ as our Savior. Did you really die for me? Did you really die for that? Did you really come for who I am and what I've done? These are the guilty fears that lead to doubt, that so often keep us languishing in the despondency of our own souls and sins. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? A lot of times it's because of these guilty fears. And when we have these guilty fears, they often paralyze us, don't they? When we have doubts in our Christian walk, our Christian life, it paralyzes us in, in our worship for the Lord. It's not as sweet because we have a guilty fear. We doubt. It affects and paralyzes us in our walk with the Lord. We don't pray as we ought to or as we did. We don't read the Bible as we ought to or as we did. We don't bask in the fellowship with Christ and the rejoicing that we even saw this morning because we have those guilty fears. We have those doubts, those doubts that are based on those guilty fears. And it even paralyzes in our witness for the Lord. We're not the light that we're supposed to be in this world. We're not the salt that we're to be in our communities. We're not we're bearing a testimony to the people that we work with or even to the people that we, own, that we live with. Guilty fears will paralyze you. And that's why we need to arise. But without help, we can't. Without help, we won't. Wesley seemed to know personally 
that there are times in a Christian's life when they need to remind themselves of the gospel. And maybe tonight is the time that you need to remind yourself of these gospel truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will rise you up and bring you out of your despondency and bring you out of those guilty fears. Because we find the final result, actually, in the last two lines of the last stanza, if you look at that briefly, because what happens when Christ is the one that you go to and go through for the help that you need to arise, what happens? With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That is what Charles Wesley wanted out of his relationship with God. But do you know that's what God wants you out, wants out of your relationship with Him? He wants you and me to come near Him with confidence and cry out to Him, Abba, Father. So what happens between the first two lines of the first stanza and the last two lines of the last stanza? How can we have our souls arise to this point? Well, the answer is in this hymn. And of course... These last few lines remind us of, of a couple of verses already. Actually, I think a lot of this hymn is really a commentary on the book of Hebrews. I mean, how many things do we hear in each one of these lines that, that reflects something in the book of Hebrews? For example, Hebrews 4.16, we're encouraged to come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, with confidence, I now draw nigh. How can we do that? It's through Christ. There's another echo from Galatians 4, 6, where Paul says, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the kind of relationship that Christ came to give you. A relationship of, of closeness with God. A relationship of a family relationship with God. Where you are his son, you are his daughter, you are his child, and you can cry out to him, Abba. Because he loves you and you love him. So how can you get from the point of the first two lines of the first stanza here to the last two lines of the last stanza? Well, that's what we find again in the rest of Wesley's hymn. He shows how Christ himself is the way to get from your doubts and guilty fears to a holy boldness in which you can draw nigh to God in your relationship with him as your heavenly father. Is that what you want in your Christian life? Are you just okay with where you're at? Are you just okay with, from time to time, saying to yourself, why are you cast down, O my soul, and you're just stuck there, and you're fine with it? You know, there are some times when people are fine with just being in that state, that condition. But it should not be if you really have any quest or desire for your Christian life. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. Do you want something greater? Do you want to cast off those guilty fears, all of those doubts and fears, so that you can go in the relationship that Christ has given to you as a family member of God's and approach His throne of grace at any time, for anything, in any way, boldly? That's what this hymn is all about. And that's what Jesus can do. He can take a soul that is cast down with fear and bring it to the Lord in fervency. 
He can take a soul that is filled with doubt and bring it to the Lord with absolute dependence. How is it that Jesus can do that? Well, I think there's five things, five ways that we can see in each of these five stanzas. First thing is the surety of Christ. The surety of Christ. This is what we find there in that first stanza. Again, here's the problem. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. But how is it that that can happen? Because the bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then he adds, before the throne my surety stands. What's a surety? Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. And again, line after line, almost word after word, there's another allusion to some scripture that we find in the Bible. We don't have the time to look at every single one of those. But of course, the biggest question in this stanza is, what is a surety? I mean, to really be encouraged by this song, don't we have to know what this song even means? What does this surety mean, and what does it have to do with Jesus and his bleeding sacrifice for me and for my sin? Well, a surety... It's simply an old way to describe someone or something that serves as a pledge for a promise that is made. A pledge for a promise that is made. For example, when Colson and Paige were looking for this house and they started to you know, make that bid and go through the whole process of going back and forth, they had to, along with that first contract and their first signature, they had to put down a Payment, a down payment, earnest money, a surety, a pledge of their promise that they're serious about being interested in this house. And that if they get out of this contract that has no basis in that contract, then they lose that surety. It's a pledge of a promise that they made to the seller of that house. There are some that would see a, an engagement ring as sort of a surety, a down payment, if you will, a deposit. I want to marry you, and so I'm going to give you this as an earnest, as a surety, a pledge of my promise to love you and to be with you and to marry you and to be your husband for the rest of your life. Well, here, it's not an object that is a surety, it's a person. Here, Jesus is the surety. Here, Jesus is the one who provides himself as the pledge for his own promises that he makes to all who believe in him. In fact, we find that word in Hebrews 7.22, another allusion in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. He was made a surety, a down payment, an earnest of a better testament, a better covenant. Of course, we know there are many promises that we have in the Bible. There are many exceeding great and precious promises in the gospel, not the least of which we find in John 6, 37, which we looked at a number of months ago, when Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What a promise. When you come to, by faith in Christ to receive you even in your sin, he says, When you come to me, I will in no wise, no way, no how, cast you out. Now, sometimes we still doubt that, don't we? And sometimes when we doubt, we have a soul that is downcast, that is struggling. And here the song is, arise, my soul, arise. 
Shake off thy guilty fears. Why? Because your bleeding sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, is your surety, and He will keep His promise to you that He gave to you because He Himself is the pledge for that promise. He is the pledge for that promise. He made that pledge as the bleeding sacrifice who appears before God the Father in your behalf, and Jesus can keep His promise because Jesus is that pledge. And that ought to bring us a little bit closer to that final goal of enjoying that boldness before the throne of God. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Why? Because Jesus is your surety. He is the very pledge for every single promise that he has ever made to you in Scripture. You don't have to rely on anyone else but him. And when you give him your soul, your soul was in good hands. But then second, our souls can arise even further because of the service of Christ. We find this in the second stanza, the service of Christ. Wesley continues, He, again referring to Christ, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Of course, this reminds us of the service of Jesus that is taking place right this very moment. As Jesus is in heaven, after his ascension, he has been up there and he's been doing this, his service, his work. We find another verse from Hebrews alluded to in this stanza, wherefore Jesus, uh, Hebrews 7.25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever lives, so he ever lives above, to make intercession for them. He ever lives above for me to intercede. That's his service, his service. And this is another reason why, our, as Christians, we all can arise and draw nigh to God, because Jesus himself appears there, not just with us, but for us. Jesus intercedes for his people. You know, it's encouraging when you hear someone say, I'm praying for you. It's encouraging when you tell someone that you're praying for them. Here, Wesley reminds us that Jesus prays for you. That's what intercession is. He speaks to his Father on your behalf. We don't know how often that is, but I would like to think it's all the time. He knows you. He's burdened for you. He cares for you. And so he prays for you. Jesus intercedes for you. And he does so forever to plead his precious blood on your behalf. His service in heaven actually depends on the sacrifice he made for us on earth. Now, there is a phrase in the stanza that is often changed in hymnals today. And that's where Wesley stated, His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race. Now, one way to take this is that Wesley saw everyone in this world as part of one race, which is the human race. You've probably heard that phrase before. I think this aligns very closely with his understanding and really the true understanding of Acts 17.26, where in one of Paul's messages in Athens, he says that God hath made of one blood 
all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And so it's very true. There is only one race in this world, and that's the human race. And if we really understood this, there, that would be the answer to racism, right? Because in one real sense, we are all related. I love how Answers in Genesis put, puts it in Ken Ham. You know, we all just have different shades of melatonin in our skin. We might be from different places in this planet, different places of this world, but we're all of one blood. We all trace our lineage back to Noah, and then from Noah all the way back to Adam and Eve. We are all this one race. And certainly this is one of the reasons that motivated both Wesley brothers, John and Wesley, to share the gospel with the Indians in Georgia, right? Because they knew they were part of the same race that they were. They looked a little differently. They spoke funny. They had some strange customs. But they are of the same race, and they needed the same gospel because Jesus, who saves them, can also save others. But it also motivated them to fight against the slave trade in both England and in the Americas. And I think that's probably what Wesley had in mind when he wrote this. But there is another way to take this phrase, and that is to see in it Wesley's understanding of salvation, kind of taking it more in a theological way where he believed in a what is described as a universal atonement, in that Jesus' blood actually atoned for everybody, and all somebody would need to do is accept that atonement with their own free will in order for it to be effective for them. From various places in Scripture, we know that the will that we say is free is really not that free. It's in bondage. The will that we all have as sinners is utterly defective and deficient and even dead when it comes to spiritual things. So the only way a sinner like you and like me can ever choose to believe in Christ is if our will is touched by Christ and touched by God because Philippians 2.13 says very clearly that it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So any will that I have that is good, any will that I have that is bent toward God, is something that I didn't do myself. <laughs> it's something that God worked in me in some mysterious way through his spirit, by his grace. And so this difference in theology has caused some to change this line from what he wrote, his blood atoned for all our race, reflecting his understanding of universal atonement. They would change it to his blood atoned for every race. You can see that even with that change, it actually brings out a misunderstanding of his understanding of the brotherhood of man in that we are all made of one blood. So I really don't think changing it improves much on what Wesley wrote. <laughs> Because even though the atonement of Christ on the cross is effective only for those who believe, it's not universally applied to everyone because we know not everyone is saved. But at the same time, the power of Christ and his atonement is sufficient enough for everyone to be saved if they were to be saved. Jesus' blood is of infinite value. And every race... The change to every race actually introduces a thought, I think, that was foreign to Wesley's understanding of what man is. 
no matter what color or complexion of skin they had, it's all one race. Now, I may not entirely agree with Wesley's theology, and it's interesting because even John and Charles didn't agree on every part of their theology. I can still agree with Wesley and even sing the line as he originally wrote it, as we will sing it here shortly. But arise, my soul, arise. Why? Because this is the one who came for us. Another reason why our souls can arise, third, is the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. We find that in the third stanza. Very poetically, very beautifully, Wesley puts, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak. There are some who put plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. What a beautiful way to remind us of the suffering and sacrifice that Jesus went through on the cross for our behalf, on our behalf for our sins. Five bleeding wounds. What are those wounds that Jesus suffered for you? The wound of his head. When the crown of thorns was not just placed, but shoved on his head. The wounds of his two hands as they were spread out on that cross and nailed there. And then the two wounds on his feet, his legs, as they were crossed and nailed to the cross as well. This same idea is, is captured by Isaac Watts as well. When he says, and he writes, we often sing, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did air such Love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. Sometimes I think we forget about those wounds until Good Friday. Sometimes I think we forget about the suffering that Jesus went through for the sins that you're committing this very day or last week or even the ones that are yet to come. Five bleeding wounds he bears for you and for me. Well, some would say, well, what about the wound to Jesus' side? Are, are we missing one? Are we missing something? Well, we need to remember that the wound to Jesus' side when the soldier took his javelin and, and thrust it into his side, and the Bible says, out came forth blood and water. It was not suffered while he was living. Remember that. That took place after his death to prove his death. So even as he was alive, those five bleeding wounds he bears. But these wounds of Jesus actually speak up for us in the presence of God the Father. He didn't do it for his own sin. He did it for our sin. He didn't just do it for himself. He did it for us to show that every sin debt was paid for in full by Christ. If that doesn't make your soul arise, I don't know what will. This is Christ. This is the gospel. After all. And then fourth, he adds even more. Our souls can arise because of the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of Christ. Fourth stanza, he adds, the Father hears him pray. The prayer in his words, the prayer from his wounds, the Father hears him pray. 
his dear anointed one, Christ, Messiah, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. So his spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. Have you noticed the very personal nature of this hymn? It, you know, in, in the New Testament, in Colossians, it says that we are to sing to each other psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to, to teach each other and admonish each other. This is a hymn that is personal. This is a hymn for you not just to sing to someone else, but for you to sing to yourself. When you are in that position, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God and look to Christ in this hymn. Look to Christ in these words. In these lines, Wesley reveals God the Father's answer to the prayers of his Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, that's Jesus, he cannot turn away the presence of his Son, and his Spirit answers to the blood. Here we have the Trinity at work. Some of the best hymns that we have are Trinitarian hymns, where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in them. But here we have the Trinity at work because of all that Jesus did for us. He did fully and finally. And it's all because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to, as it says in 1 John 1, 7, cleanse us from all sin. Now, I put on your message guide, and I hope you noticed that in each stanza up through this stanza, the blood of Jesus is not only mentioned, it's instrumental. His blood is absolutely necessary for his sacrifice, right? His blood is absolutely necessary for his service. His blood is absolutely necessary for even being our surety, our down payment. Again, the first stanza, he's the bleeding sacrifice. In the second stanza, he is, it is his precious blood that pleads and atones and is sprinkled for us. In the third stanza, it's his five wounds that are bleeding wounds. And here in the fourth stanza, the spear answers to the blood. This is a bloody hymn. And yet, that blood is so precious. We must never get over the power of Christ and his precious blood that he shed for us as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And then that leads us to that fifth stanza. And the fifth reason that our souls can arise and actually get to where we need to be in our relationship with God, and that is because of the solution that we find in Christ. The solution of Jesus. This is what we find. And, and notice in this stanza, there's no mention of blood. Because the blood has been applied, the blood has been dealt with, the blood has been pled, and now everything that blood was supposed to do has done. My God is reconciled, he says. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. And now to answer the, the longing in the first two lines of the first stanza, those guilty fears, says, I can no longer fear. So with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. So the soul that is cast down, finally, because of all of those unfounded fears and doubts, can arise because Jesus is the solution to them all. If you have a doubt, if you have a fear, if you have guilt, Jesus is the solution for them all. You see, because of Jesus, there's peace with God, right? My God is reconciled. 
Because of Jesus, there is pardon from God. His parting voice I hear. Because of Jesus, there is possession by God. He owns me for his child. And because of Jesus, there's power with God. I can no longer fear. So if and when your soul gets cast down, meditate on psalms like Psalm 42. And meditate on hymns like this hymn. Arise, my soul, arise. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of Christ and all that he did for you and all that he means to you so that you might sing with Charles and Sally Wesley and their children with confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for hymns like these and psalms like these that remind us of where we go and what we do when our souls are cast down. And Lord, one of the reasons why we often do get down in our souls is because of those guilty fears. And so, Lord, I pray that we will preach the very message of this hymn to our souls. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on thy behalf appears. And as we focus on Christ and we look to Christ and we trust in Christ and we rest in Christ and Christ becomes our all in all and Christ becomes our life, then we can go to the very end of this hymn and experience the joy of the solution in this hymn. With confidence, we now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Lord, I pray that you'll help us today to shake off our guilty fears. And Lord, if there's a soul that's cast down here tonight, I pray that you will give them a spark through this hymn, through this psalm, through your spirit, through your word, to cause them to arise again. Because the fellowship with you, the fellowship with Christ, is possible. We can draw nigh to you because you drew nigh to us. In the Son, in Christ, but also through your Spirit. You drew nigh so closely that you're not just with us, you're even within us. Arise, my soul, arise. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand together as we finish up our services today, and, and we're going to sing, Behold the Man. Behold the Man. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. 
His blood atoned for all our race, His blood atoned for all our race, And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears, Received on Calvary, They pour effectual prayers, they strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood, his Spirit answers to the blood, and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear, He owns me for His child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this message in song and this message from your word. And now, Father, I pray that you will help us to take these truths and meditate upon them, Lord, help them not just to go in one ear out the other or just come into our mind here in this place and out they go as we leave this place. Because, Lord, we know that perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps sometime next week or next month, Lord, our souls will be cast down. And we will need this hope, the hope that we find in Christ. We will need this help, the help that we find from Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to preach to ourselves and to say to ourselves in those states, in those conditions, arise my soul, arise. Because Christ is all that we need to bring us to the very throne of grace and to be able to come not as the sinners that we were, but as the sons, the daughters, the children that we are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.